Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion about films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about the 1942 classic Casablanca, directed by Michael Curtiz. Often cited as one of the greatest films ever made, Casablanca is set in 1941 during the Second World War and centers around three people, Rick Blaine, played by Humphrey Bogart, Ilsa Lund, played by Ingrid Bergman, and Victor Laszlo, played by Paul Henreid. Ilsa is married to Victor, but had an affair with Rick after she believed Victor had been killed in a Nazi concentration camp for his resistance activities. All three are now in the Moroccan city of Casablanca, a temporary place where refugees from Europe go, desperately trying to obtain visas to get to the Americas. Will Ilsa and Victor get out of Casablanca? Will Rick help them? I talk about the making of the film and how it looks at things like nostalgia, personal sacrifice, and the plight of refugees. This episode is not just about the movie. It's also about an important film appreciation class that I took when I was in high school in 2004, a class that changed my life forever because it was the first time I saw film not just as entertainment but as an art form. The class was taught by a teacher who also changed how I saw the world. I talk in depth about this film appreciation class, sharing memories of it, and exploring why it was so transformative for me. I then give my thoughts about Casablanca and why I love it so much. There are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadandfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadandfilms. You can also write a positive review of the podcast on iTunes, tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, and or follow me on social media and even interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I won't go on any longer. Here's my full episode about Michael Curtiz's Casablanca. about this podcast is that every film is chosen for a very specific reason and it's chosen for a personal reason. I chose to talk about Casablanca for a very very specific reason and that's because it was one of the first films that I really fell in love with and it was part of a film appreciation class that I took in high school in 2004 when I was around 15 years old and what I wanted to do in talking about Casablanca was to talk a bit about that class to reminisce about it and about the impact that it had on me. And I do this as well in my episode about Singing in the Rain. That was another film that we watched in this film appreciation class. I'm a very nostalgic person. You might be a new listener. This might be the first episode of mine you've ever listened to. But if you've listened to a few episodes, you might know I'm very nostalgic. I think a lot about my childhood. I think about the things that 
affected me when I was younger. And in a lot of ways inside myself, I still feel like a child. I still feel like a young teenage girl. (laughs) It's weird. I have this odd dichotomy. I, I guess we all do. We're all very mysterious and complicated, where at times I'm very serious. This is an incredibly serious podcast. Every now and then I make jokes or something, but I feel pretty stupid when I try to be funny. I don't think I am funny. (laughs) I'm very serious, but then I can also be very juvenile and silly. It's just weird. I love art house cinema and literary books and like very serious things. And then there's this other part of me that's like, oh, but I'm a 16 year old girl inside. Like that's who I really am. Listening to my pop music and (laughs) things like that that I do. I don't know. It's, it's always been a contradiction where I've always felt very old and very young at the same time where I've always felt like an old soul, but I've also felt very naive and innocent and sort of tender and sensitive the way that you would as a teenager or something. I think it has a lot to do with losing my dad when I was 16. I I think in a lot of ways emotionally it froze me at 16 years old in a weird way but then it also made me very serious and intense at the same time. It's just something I think about sometimes like those contradictions of myself but I want to talk about this film appreciation class and so that's why I chose this film to begin with. I think Casablanca for a lot of people is a is a gateway into cinema. It is a door that a lot of people go through and they fall in love with what they see on the screen. It's almost like a high. It's an intoxication to really have an experience of transcendence or connection with a work of art and you find that you want to experience that all the time. And I sometimes wonder if I'm always a little bit like an addict always in search of another high. There's something about when you watch certain films for the first time, one that comes to mind for me is The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodore Dreyer, or The Double Life of Veronique by Krzysztof Kieślowski, or Stalker by Andrzej Tarkovsky. You watch these films and something of you is forever changed. Something happens between you and the film that you can't explain. It's inexplicable. And maybe as an atheist, I don't have that transcendence through religion. I don't have transcendence through any other means or spirituality. And I think that films, along with certain books for me, give me almost a spiritual connection or experience. You feel forever changed and forever transformed by certain films. But more than that, it's the experience between you and the film. It is completely singular and unique and intimate and mysterious, and there is no way to communicate it to another person. It's why I have a hard time writing about films. It's why I have to talk about them. I don't know how to compress all of the feelings and emotions that I have for certain films into a few sentences or paragraphs that you can read in 10 minutes. (laughs) That's why these episodes get long. That's why they get, you know, whatever. I have to just talk about it. It's almost like therapy. It's almost like talk therapy, but with films, film therapy. Like, I just want to talk. I just want to talk about a film because I feel so changed by it, transformed, moved, overwhelmed. It's inexplicable in so many ways. And I think I'm always searching for it. I'm always searching for that 
divinity or something sacred that I do find in art. And it happens with certain songs. It happens in that way too. It's it's not limited to films for me. It's most intense, I think, sometimes with films. But it can also be very intense with a poem or a gorgeous book. Virginia Woolf comes to mind reading something like The Waves or Mrs. Dalloway or with music like by Tori Amos and or Kate Bush or Cat Power, those are some of my favorites personally, you have these very mysterious, almost spiritual, religious experiences with art. And the thing is, is that it feeds you, it nourishes you. But then there's this part of you that wants to share it with somebody else and wants to share it with the world and wants to proselytize almost or preach so that other people will listen to that song or other people will read that book or other people will watch that film. And maybe that's that's what I'm trying to do through these episodes. I'm trying to explain my emotional, personal experience of a film in the hopes that you'll seek out the film. Maybe my experience with the film is similar to yours and similar to the experience that you had. Films just speak to me in different ways. I am the film whisperer, okay? <laughs> no, I'm not. But I'm just saying, like, I feel ridiculous when I talk like this. <laughs> this is what film does to me, and I wouldn't be in this place, I wouldn't have these films without Casablanca. That was one of the first films that I absolutely fell in love with, and that's why I'm excited to talk about the film. It makes me think about that film appreciation class. That class was so incredibly consequential for my life. I think a lot about the things that create us. I just turned 30 recently, and something about turning 30 has made me think even more about my childhood, even more about the things that formed me and created me. And it's very mysterious to me and fascinating to me, the things that create us. And I think that we are created the most when we are children, or especially when we are teenagers. When I was a teen, around 15 or 16, I had certain artists who absolutely created me. I don't know how else like to describe it or what other word to use, but it completely these women shaped me and they would be Virginia Woolf, Sylvia Plath, Frida Kahlo, and Tori Amos. Those are the goddesses, I guess, of my life. These are the women who created me, besides my mother, of course. But as a thinking creating being, these women affected me so deeply. I was that teenage girl reading Sylvia Plath, looking at the paintings of Frida Kahlo, and listening to my Tori Amos. That was me. I feel like a cliche because I think now we know like a lot of girls gravitate to Frida Kahlo and Sylvia Plath. It's almost like a universal experience at this point. So many young women find certain artists when they're very young, right? And those were the women for me. I just think a lot about the things that created me as a teenager and this class in 2004 is one of them and maybe I was primed (laughs) to be affected by this class I was already sensitive I was already a writer I thought of myself as a writer as a creative sensitive person felt things very deeply cared very much about the world around me I felt very political I was very much on the left when it came to politics at that time and I grew up in a small town in North Carolina and it was very conservative very Republican very religious and it was the early 
early 2000s during the Bush years. This is post 9-11. This is the war on terror. This is wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. This is a time of great turmoil and also a time where right-wing ideas were very popular, as they are now, where conservatism was very powerful, as it is now, and all of that was in that small town and in that environment where I grew up and lived. So this film appreciation class came into my life at that time, at a time when I think I was craving knowledge, I was craving things that would move me, I was craving connection, I wanted to know about the world, I wanted to know about other people, their cultures. I was always very curious about the world around me. I was an atheist at that time. I still am. I've always been an atheist. And that was a very big part of my identity that I kept to myself. I did not have a lot of friends as a kid. I still don't really have any friends. I have my mom. <laughs> I have some people that I know online, but in real life, I don't really have a big support system. I don't have strong connections to my relatives. I don't really have a family. I'm some who's always been profoundly alone and lonely in the world. Someone very much in my head, in in my, I live the life of the mind, I guess you could say. I have a very rich and intense inner world, inner life that I've always tried to express through writing primarily. And the big passion of my life up to the time I started to fall in love with films were, were books and literature and poetry. And those are the things that I'm still very passionate about. But cinema has become a a major, major passion, probably since the time I was in my early 20s. But this class that I took in 2004 at 15 really was the foundation for me becoming a cinephile. And it was... I've already talked about this class in my episode about Singing in the Rain, but you might be a new listener and you don't necessarily want to go seek out that episode, so I will tread some similar ground here. The class was taught by an amazing teacher that I had. I would describe her as like a Mr. Keating from Dead Poets Society. That was how important she was to my life and how transformative she was, and her name was Mrs. Ray. She taught this film appreciation class And then later on, I took a second class from her about the Holocaust, where we learned about the Second World War and and the Holocaust. And that was another very important class to me because ever since I was around 10 years old, I've been very obsessed with the Holocaust and with genocide. And I've learned a lot about it. I read a lot of books about it, watch films about it. It's, It's important. It's learning about the Holocaust for me has been very important in forming my own sense of morality and ethics and the way that I see the world. I don't think I would be who I am today if I hadn't read the diary of Anne Frank, if I hadn't learned about the Holocaust and what human beings are capable of, the violence that we can inflict on one another. I hope to eventually talk more about the Holocaust on the podcast. I have covered two films. One film that I've covered is Phoenix by Christian Petzold. The other film is Sophie's Choice by Alan J. Pecula. So those are two Holocaust films that I have covered. Eventually, I would like to talk about more because there's quite a few Holocaust films that I think are very important and that have been really important to my own life. So she was a very central teacher in my life. She was very supportive of me as a writer. She said very kind things to me about my writing and just about who I was. She really encouraged me 
as a student, as a thinker, as a writer at a time when I needed that. It's very powerful, I think, when a teacher or an authority figure or somebody older than you gives you positive affirmation or positive reinforcement and lets you feel like you matter or that you have value as a person. And I didn't have that a lot growing up. I had really great parents. My mom and dad were wonderful to me, but I didn't get any kind of love or attention or positive feedback beyond my parents when I was in the world. I've just always struggled to be seen. I've always been very invisible, sort of like a nobody in the world. It's been a hard experience, but it's just part of my life. And so she was a a very positive presence in my life through this film class and through the Holocaust class. And what was so great about the film appreciation class was that, first of all, it was set up not in a regular classroom, but in the school theater. The school, I don't want to call it the auditorium because I don't think you would call it that, but it was like, you know how every high school puts on plays and stuff like the drama club and the drama kids. And so it was just like a theater. It probably had a few hundred seats in it. It was just this small theater where you could put plays on and stuff like that and do theater productions and and stuff like that. That's where we had the class. So we actually got to be in an environment very similar to a movie theater. And the the screen would come down from the ceiling and then she would project the film on this screen and she would lower the lights. And so we actually got to watch Singing in the Rain and Casablanca and some other films that I'm gonna list in a movie theater experience. And it was wonderful. So we got to experience these films, I think in the process way, you know, with the lights down and it being projected. I think that made it even more magical and it made it even more special. I mean, as I think about it, I'm smiling. There were not a lot of kids in this class. I would say maybe a dozen two dozen. I don't even know if I would go up to 20. It was a very small class. We were seated Uh, very far apart. Like there were several seats in between us. It was a small, intimate class in that way. And I think a lot of us were watching these films for the first time. And we were having uh, a, a grand time watching a lot of them. And I like to think that a lot of us in the class were falling madly in love with film, that our love affair with cinema was beginning. Up to this point, of course, I had gone to see movies. I had gone to the movies since I was a child. I remember in the summertime when I would stay with my grandma, my mother's mother, who's passed away. She died in 2007. I remember she would take me and my two cousins. We would go to the local movie theater and watch Disney films and things like that. I grew up on The Lion King and The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and all of that. And those are the Disney films that I really love. So, of course, of course I liked films. But this film appreciation class was the first time where I learned about the history of film, where I learned about silent cinema. I learned about the studio system. And I actually watched the big classics of Hollywood cinema. And I saw film not just as a form of entertainment or escape or fun, but I saw film as a real art form. That was the difference with this class. She did the class not as like a regular 
thing that you probably had in high school. But as a college course, we didn't have multiple choice on the quizzes and the exam. We had to know the answers. They were open-ended. There was often an essay component. And she said that when she was teaching the class, she said, I want this to be like a college course. I want you to know the answer and I want you to know the information. So we didn't get to just remember the scantrons where you'd have A, B, C, D, E, and you just marked an answer. That's not what her class was. Her class was, you need to know the answers and you need to write an essay. And then at the end of the class, we had a big project where we had to choose a filmmaker and we had to watch their filmography or quite a few of their films. And then we had to give a presentation about it. And I chose, you're going to be shocked you're gonna be shocked at the director I chose. I chose M. Night Shyamalan. (laughs) At the time, I don't think his reputation was the greatest, but he has since come back, made a big comeback with his work, right? With Split. I know Split was a really big film a few years ago. I haven't seen it. I was really into The Sixth Sense when I was younger. I was very, I was really into that film and The Village... I will defend the village forever and you can hate me for it and judge me for it, but I will defend the village no matter what. I liked that film and I was really shocked when people did not like it. It's the hill I'm willing to die on. I liked Lady in the Water. I don't know why. Paul Giamatti? I really liked Paul Giamatti. So I went through up to that point, 2004, M. Night Shyamalan's filmography and I did a presentation about him. So that was the person that I chose. So I have a lot of great memories of this class, of sitting in that dark theater and watching these Hollywood classics for the first time. And some of the films that we watched, I recently made a list of them because my memory is so terrible. And I wanted to try to remember as many as I could. And these are the ones that I remember seeing. I think we watched. My memory is not 100% with this. I wish I had written down the films at the time. The only reason that I know this class was in 2004 is because I was recently going through my diaries. I've kept diaries since I was very, very young, probably 12 or 13, and I still have all of them. I write in a diary every day. It's very important to me to write down things that are going on in my life, things going on in the world. And so I found an old diary and I had talked about the the class in it and it was from 2004. That is the only way that I know the exact year because my memory is terrible. I cannot remember the years that things happened, the months that things happened, only with very specific things like my father's death or something like that. Of course, I remember the year that that happened. But for a lot of other stuff, when it comes to my memories, I have no idea what year things happened. But some of the films we watched were Hitchcock's Notorious. We watched a lot of Hitchcock. We watched Vertigo, Psycho, The Birds. That was a funny one because there are some weird scenes in that film and I remember us laughing a lot. There was this scene where Tippi Hedren's in a telephone booth and she makes these crazy looking faces. And I remember the whole class laughing out loud at that. We watched The Wizard of Oz. We watched Gone with the Wind. Everybody hated Gone with the Wind. It was long, laborious. We couldn't stand it. I have no desire to rewatch it. Some Like It Hot. We watched Gentleman's Agreement, which looked at anti-Semitism. We watched Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Singing in the Rain. We watched a lot of Charlie Chaplin including The Great Dictator. We watched Casablanca, as I'm going to talk about. We watched some contemporary films like The Chaplin biopic with Robert Downey Jr. 
We watched The Majestic that stars Jim Carrey, one of his few at that time serious roles, and it was actually like a a flop for him. People did not like The Majestic. I have not watched it since then in 2004, but I would like to rewatch it and see what I think about it now. We watched some noir like The Maltese Falcon and Double Indemnity. We watched Citizen Kane, which at the time was considered the greatest film ever made. A lot of polls had come out putting it at the top. Now, a lot of those same polls put Vertigo at the top. Personally, I would choose Citizen Kane. I think that Orson Welles did a lot of technical brilliance in that film, and I also think that the story to me is more compelling about power and corruption and things like that. We watched The Lady from Shanghai, We watched Rebel Without a Cause, and we also watched another contemporary film called Dead Men Walking. And I would say that film was really important to me in helping me become anti-death penalty. I don't believe or support the death penalty, and I do believe that Dead Man Walking is a big reason for that. So this film shaped me in many ways. The Teacher, Mrs. Ray, shaped me in so many ways, and this was a class that created me. The thing about it is, when you think about the things that shape you, what if you had not come in contact with that thing? What if I'd never read Sylvia Plath, right? What if I had not taken this class? It was an elective. I don't know why I chose it. It was just a class that was available, and I thought, oh, I'll take film appreciation. That sounds interesting. And look at the path that it put me on. I fell in love with film, in that class. I fell in love with classic Hollywood cinema. After I took that class, I started to watch Turner Classic Movies more. I would buy blank VHS tapes because this was the early 2000s. There was no Netflix. (laughs) There was no Hulu. A lot of the time, if you wanted to see a film, you either saw it in the movie theater, you rented it at Blockbuster, you bought the DVD or the VHS, or you saw it on television. Those are the ways that you accessed film back then. And so I would buy blank VHS tapes and I would record films off Turner Classic Movies. I recorded all kinds of different movies. I think it was eventually that I saw The Passion of Joan of Arc on Turner Classic Movies. And I want to say that came a few years after that film appreciation class. Seeing that film and I have an episode about it. Seeing that film was an even more intense experience. That is the film that I credit with becoming like a true cinephile. Because while this class was important, I didn't have a lot of access to film at the time because of just the way things were. I lived in a rural area. My local library did not have the best film selection. So while I was really in love with these classic Hollywood films, I didn't know anything about foreign cinema or world cinema or art house cinema. Seeing The Passion of Joan of Arc later on, a few years later probably, I don't know the year I saw it, that is what really got me into art house, I think. It was just this big awakening for me. But again, I did not have access to these films. I just didn't. I lived in a rural area, didn't, I was working class, didn't have a lot of money. It was very hard to access art house cinema. So it wasn't really until about 2011 when I was in college, I had a laptop, Netflix and Hulu existed. The Criterion Collection at that time was on Hulu around 2011, 2012, I think. That's when I started to really get into European art house cinema. And that is when I actually became what I would call a cinephile. That is when film became an everyday part of my life because it could be because I had access 
access to it. And I wonder sometimes if we don't talk enough about that. You know, I come from a very different background than some cinephiles. Some cinephiles who might live in urban areas or city areas or who just might have better access to cinema. When I was younger, it was harder for me. It was harder for me to find these films and get them. And so if you think about it, the internet has obviously been a very powerful force for encouraging cinephilia and sustaining it and getting more people hopefully interested in art house cinema. But once I had a laptop and I had the internet, I didn't grow up with a computer. I didn't grow up with the internet in my house. I really did not have regular internet access and a computer until I was in college when I was around 20 20 years old, 19 or 20 years old. I went to college so late because my fa- of my father's death. My dad died when I was 16. I graduated the next year and I got a job at a factory to help support my mom. So I wasn't able to go to college right out of high school. It came a few years later where I eventually did go to college and I studied literature, English literature, and women's studies that was my focus. That's what I double majored in. And it was during my time at college where I started to watch art house cinema on my laptop and I started to fall in love with French cinema and all kinds of different directors from Truffaut to um, Agnes Varda and Carl Theodore Dreyer and Ingmar Bergman and Andre Tarkovsky, Michelangelo Antonioni. I have episodes about all these directors if you want to explore that. So it was, it's been sort of a long road for me becoming a cinephile because of material circumstances. The passion was there, but I didn't necessarily have access to the films. Once I had access to them in 2011, that's when the obsession with film really started and got more and more and more intense and it has over the years. Then I created this podcast in 2016 and ever since then film has been a central important, beautiful, life-sustaining, life-giving part of my life and has really become a huge part of my identity. So it's been a process and I know it probably sounds confusing when I talk about it, but the important thing that I want to say is that this class in 2004, this film appreciation class, with this amazing teacher was the beginning of everything for me. And it planted the seed. It laid the foundation for who I am today over a decade later and who I have become. And it created me in such profound ways that I can't imagine who I would be today without that class. And without Mrs. Ray, I just can't imagine who I would be. I think we all have that in our lives, the things that create us the things that shape us irrevocably, where you can't go back. You can't go back to the before. You are forever changed. And another important part of her class, not just was it this college format, which I think really prepared me for college and helped me. And her Holocaust class was set up that way too, where we had to write essays and we had to know the answers to questions on quizzes and tests. We couldn't just bubble in A, B, C, or D. She was very big about media literacy, teaching us media literacy and how to look at the news and to be critical thinkers. That was a very big part of her class is that she wanted us to be thinkers. She wanted us to be aware of the world around us. That taught me so much. I was already a leftist. 
at that time, I was already incredibly interested in radical politics, I would say. But we all go on a journey, right? I probably maybe was more Democrat or liberal at that time. But over the years, I've become much more to the left. And I would not call myself a Democrat or a liberal now. I am much more of a leftist. I am much more of a democratic socialist. And socialism has become a really big part of my political praxis and political philosophy. And I would define her that way. I do think she was very much on the left. I don't know how she would have defined herself. This was the time, as I said, of Iraq, Afghanistan. We had a media at the time that did not question the war in Iraq and celebrated it. There were protests, but that was not the norm, really. We were living at a time when there was just a lot of conservatism in the news, and there was all this war, the war on terror, all these things. And she was such an important guide in my life and presence in my life at that time to help me think about politics, to think about the world in a more complex way and to be a critical thinker, to not just swallow what I was being told and to think for myself and to resist some of that propaganda and those messages that I saw, to be alert about what was going on around me and to not just let people tell me what to think. And that was so, so important to me. And it still is so important to me. So this class, in every conceivable way, was absolutely essential to who I am. And it created me in such deep and meaningful ways that it's hard to even talk about. And it's literally, if I hadn't taken this class, who would I be? I don't know. But those things happen in our lives all the time. You're just living. You're just living your life in the moment. You don't know what is going to last. You don't know what things are leading to other things. You don't know the cause and effect in the moment. You don't know that, oh, if I take this class, this is going to lead me on a path that will change my life forever. You don't know that. You don't know what you're going to remember. You don't know what's going to make an impact. You're just in it. You're in the chaos of life. And it's really only when you look back and you reflect the way I'm doing in this episode. This is why I love doing this podcast is that I love having the space and creating the space to reflect to think about my life, to think about the things that have affected me. And this is one of them. This class affected me. It was not just about film. That's the thing. Film was an important part of it. It wasn't just about becoming a film lover. It was about becoming the kind of person that I wanted to be. It was about choosing who I was going to be. And I didn't realize it at the time because I was just 15 years old sitting in a class (laughs) watching Casablanca. But really what I was doing was becoming the person that I needed to become. And I was making choices without even realizing it about who I would be in the world, the thoughts I would have, the way I would treat people, the way I would watch the news. All of those things were being shaped in that one class. And here I am today. It's incredibly powerful. If one thing had been missing, if one thing If I hadn't taken that class, if she had not been teaching it, all kinds of things could have gone wrong or could have gone differently. But I am so grateful that they went the way that they did and that this class came into my life and that this film, Casablanca, came into my life. And now that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Casablanca. 
as always, I just want to provide a little bit of information about the making of Casablanca and important historical information or context that I think is really important and that will overall contribute to my discussion of this film. I am by no means a film historian. I actually, as much as I love classic Hollywood films, and they were some of the first films that I fell in love with, I don't actually cover a lot of them on this podcast because I don't feel like I have the authority or I have the knowledge base for it. It seems like a lot of people who are into old Hollywood or classic Hollywood, they seem to have this encyclopedic knowledge of the stars and the studios and the history and all of these great things. And that is not what this episode is going to give you. I'm not going to be able to talk about Casablanca from that perspective of a classic Hollywood expert or a classic Hollywood authority. I'm not going to be able to give you all the history and the nuance and all of those things that maybe some people are looking for. What I can offer you is my own personal experience of Casablanca, what it has meant to my life, my relationship to this film, what it means to me, all of those really personal things. That is what I try to offer through Her Head and Films and through this podcast and my presence online and everything that I do with films. All of it is really refracted through my own personal lens. That's a really important thing to me, to be able to have an outlet to say why I love a film, why I'm passionate about it, how it interacts with my own inner world and my life and my thoughts and the influence that it has had on me and what it means to me. That's what I'm always trying to get at when I do these episodes is what does one film mean to somebody and how does it impact your mind and your life and how you think of yourself or how you think of the world. And I think that sort of fascinating honestly our own personal experiences with movies and that's always what I'm trying to express so I just want to be upfront about that I offer something a little bit different than maybe some podcasts would and I don't have that encyclopedic knowledge <laughs> that so many amazing classic Hollywood people seem to have I think that's okay I'm just gonna do my approach to Casablanca but I don't think that you can talk about this film without talking about about the historical context and how it was made and the genesis of it. And so while I do center my own personal experience of cinema in these episodes, I also try to strike a balance between the inner and the outer. What a film means to me in my personal life and then also the larger issues at play within a film. What is it saying about certain issues? What was its cultural impact? And all those things that are much larger than just myself. And so I do want to talk a bit about that and then I'll get into my own personal feelings about the film and why I love it and why I think it matters. So everything that I'm talking about with the the history of the film, some of the making of the film, and how it came to be, all a lot of this information comes from a book that I read called We'll Always Have Casablanca by Noah Eisenberg. I got a lot of information from his book and I think if you love Casablanca you should definitely read his book because he has all kinds of great information about the making of the film, things about the actors, and just everything you could conceivably want to know about how this film came to be from all the people who worked on the script and all kinds of stuff. 
is packed into that book. It was really great to read it and it was really interesting. Casablanca really started as a play. That is the source material for this film. The play was called Everybody Comes to Rick's and it was written in 1940 by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison. The play was inspired by Murray Burnett's trip to Europe in 1938, where firsthand and with his own eyes, he saw the impact of the Nuremberg laws and witnessed the increasing danger posed by the Nazis. I think this is a fascinating aspect of the genesis of this film is that first it starts as a play and it starts in some ways, I, I don't know if this is accurate to say, but it's almost like a play that's bearing witness to history. How, I mean, how many people can say back in the 30s or the 40s that they firsthand witnessed what was happening? happening. Most Americans at that time were more neutral and they were more separated from the turmoil and the violence and the danger that was unfolding in Europe and what was happening with fascism and the Nazis. They were very separate from it and disconnected from it. And Burnett is not He goes on this trip. From what Eisenberg wrote, he inherited some money and he had always wanted to go over to Europe. And 1938 is right before the war starts. The war started in 1939 when the Nazis invaded Poland, right? I have a big interest in the Second World War, specifically the Holocaust. So I know a little bit more about it than probably most people or just your average person. But there are a lot of complexities and nuances to it, of course. But I do think it's interesting that Burnett sees all of this stuff unfolding with his own eyes and instead of turning away from it or being neutral or saying well that's just the way it is he uses his pen to say something about it he creates this work of art that takes a stand and that has a message and you just don't always see that there are people who see horrible things happening and they don't speak up and they don't say anything, and they don't do anything. That's a big part of the Second World War, right, is that good people saw things happening and didn't stop it and didn't stand up. And you could argue that there's a parallel to the times that we're living through now in 2020 with the presidency of Donald Trump. And look at the horrible things that we've seen happen here in the United States. The way that immigrants have been treated, the way children have been treated at the border and put into camps and and imprisoned and all these horrible things that we have seen unfold with our own eyes. How many of us are really doing anything to stop it. You can feel that numbness and that helplessness. And so I think it's fascinating that Burnett goes over to Europe and he gets angry about what he sees. During this trip, Burnett found out about the refugees and the journey that they were making from Marseille and then on to Morocco. And then from Morocco, they would wait for visas to get to Lisbon and then on to America. And this is the same exact journey that refugees in Casablanca take in the movie. While in France, Burnett found this club, um, he came upon it, where he really thought a play could be set. It was a club a lot like Rick's in the film, Rick's Cafe. It had a mixture of all kinds of different people. There was even a black man there who played the piano. So there are a lot of things from that club he came across in France that he put into the play. Everybody Comes to Rick's. That was the original title. So Burnett's trip to Europe at this very dangerous, scary time, right on the precipice of a a 
catastrophic world war inspires him to write Everybody Comes to Rick's, the play. It was a three-act play, and it eventually becomes Casablanca. All the elements were there, from the threat of the Nazis to the refugee journey to the club. All of it's there that he finds in Europe. He's inspired by those things, but I think Burnett had a deeper purpose in writing the play. As I said, he was fueled by his anger at Nazism and fascism. He sees it with his own eyes, and I think that's always very different when you see it with your own eyes. You want to bear witness to that, and you want to do something. And he was a writer, a playwright, obviously. And so the only way, I guess, that he felt he could contribute something was to write this play. And so in many ways, I see this play in particular as a form of protest art or political art. Burnett wanted to say something through this story and he wanted to send a message. Sometimes this kind of art can be heavy handed or didactic, but Casablanca does not have that feel at all. Neither does something like George Orwell's 1984. There is political art that lasts and that stands the test of time or Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Protest art or political art, sometimes it can feel kind of dated because it's very much attached to sometimes the political and historical context that that births it. But then there are some kinds of political art that I think really transcend that somehow. And they have these ideas in them that stay with us. And I think Casablanca is a good example, both the play Everybody Comes to Rick's and then the film itself. As I said, he wrote the play in 1940 and it was eventually made into the film, which came out in 1942, right in the middle of the war, actually. The war was already you know, happening. The war ended in 1945. It's a rare artwork in that it was created in the midst of a catastrophic historical event, not in the aftermath. It was made right in the the middle of it, right in the chaos of it. It was made while the ending was still unknown. We didn't know yet. Would the Nazis win? Would they not? not win? What would happen with fascism? Would it take over Europe? Things like that. There were lots of big questions. Of course, at the time, Jewish people are being murdered. Many groups are being murdered. There's concentration camps. There's just all these horrific things happening, and there's no end in sight for the people who are living through it. It reminds me a bit of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic that we're going through right now. We are in the middle of it. We're in the chaos of it, and we don't know what's on the other side. We don't know what the aftermath is going to look like. And that's scary. It's very frightening to be in the middle of something so destabilizing and so world shattering, earth shattering, and you don't know what's coming or how it's going to end. The Nazis could have won in the end. He didn't know. Nobody knew in 1942 what was going to happen. The outcome was a complete mystery. The film might never have been made without the right film studio to release it. I think this is a very important part of the story and the genesis of this film. Warner Brothers Studio at that time 
and they are the studio that produced Casablanca. They were dedicated to releasing anti-fascist films. They'd already done it previously with Confessions of a Nazi Spy. That was a film that came out in 1939. So they had somewhat of a track record of this. Warner Brothers deciding to make Everybody Comes to Rick's into a film was really a crucial part of all this. They seemed to be a studio with a social conscience, I guess you could say. They wanted to make art that openly criticized fascism instead of remaining neutral the way many Americans were up into our entry into World War II. It was important to those who controlled the studio, who were the head of the studio at Warner Brothers, to release art, release films that had an anti-Nazi message and an anti-fascist message. And as we see today, there is rising fascism in the world. There are many governments around the world that have fascist aspects to them and are very right-wing, very extreme, very violent, and there are elements of that in the presidency of Donald Trump as well. This is an extremely right-wing government that we're living under right now, and a president who has defended neo-Nazis, a president who is openly hateful and disdainful of immigrants, a president who's openly racist, openly sexist, and who has emboldened many of his supporters to express those views as well and to sometimes act on them. Again, I see some parallels. According to Eisenberg in his book, We'll Always Have Casablanca, many studios continued to do business with Nazi Germany despite the terrible reality of fascism at that time. But Warner Brothers was one of the first studios to cut ties with Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Harry Warner was openly anti-Nazi, and he supported films and cartoons that attacked Nazis and fascism. Harry, along with Jack Warner, also supported the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, which was founded in 1936. President Roosevelt did end up seeing this film once it premiered in 1942. From the book by Eisenberg, it's not totally clear to me if it had an impact on him one way or the other, or had an impact on the policy decisions he made about America's role in the Second World War, but you never know. It's hard to deny that just the act of him watching it could have left a lasting impression. It's certainly a film against neutrality that I think criticizes neutrality through the character of Rick and shows that you can't remain neutral. You have to make a stand at some point. You have to believe something. I know that the film must have affected audiences of the time period and gave them a sense of why the war effort and the mission of defeating Nazism were so important. These were very important goals. So we have this play by Burnett, Everybody Comes to Rick's, and then Warner Brothers, the perfect studio who's open to this anti-Nazi, anti-fascist message that's in the play, comes along and decides to make it into a film. Those two things are so crucial. You could have the play, but then if you don't have Warner Brothers and you don't have a studio that's willing to make the play into something, then you don't have the film at all. It took Burnett seeing this injustice, seeing this horror, seeing the terror of Nazism with his own eyes to first write that source material. And then, of course, Warner Brothers comes in with various screenwriters to create a script and polish it and turn it into something really magnificent. And this script for Casablanca is still taught 
in a lot of classes on script writing and in books that have been released about script writing. It's considered like one of the greatest scripts ever written. So somehow these two things came together, the perfect source material and the perfect studio to create this magnificent film. It's so interesting to me also that when the actors were making the film, they really didn't know what it would become. (laughs) I mean, Ingrid Bergman had no idea how big the film would be. None of, none of them did. They had no idea. It was just another film they were making. I'm sure they thought it was good or well-written, but, but it's often cited as one of the greatest films ever made. I certainly don't think they knew that at the time. So thankfully, Warner Brothers was willing to make the film and to send this very explicit, blatant message against Nazism and against fascism. Warner Brothers was not neutral. Warner Brothers, like Rick, chose to take a stand and to actually stand up for something through this film and to send some kind of message. Finally, I just want to talk a little bit about the actors in this film because that's a crucial part of it. Casablanca had a major impact on many of the actors who were involved with the film. First, there's Humphrey Bogart, obviously. Up to this point in Bogart's career, he was known for playing tough guys, tough characters, mainly gangsters and the like. And I remember in my film appreciation class, we watched the Maltese Falcon. And I think he did that before this one. He kind of plays a tough guy in that film too. When he made Casablanca, he was in his 40s. And the film represented a shift in his public persona and kind of a rebirth of his image. I remember also in this film appreciation class that I took, we learned that around that time, so around 2004, Bogart had been voted the greatest movie star of all time. There was some kind of poll that had been done around that time, maybe in the late 90s or something. But Bogart was voted the greatest movie star ever. And I remember being so surprised at that. I mean, I thought for sure it would be somebody like Marilyn Monroe or Elizabeth Taylor, Audrey Hepburn, right? Or maybe even Cary Grant. Bogart, he doesn't have that traditional leading man looks, right? He looks weathered. He looks aged, even in this film. Um, He has wrinkles and you can tell his age. You can tell he's not 30 years old. There's a, there's a significant age gap between him and Ingrid Berg, but he does bring an everyman quality to his films and he is captivating to watch and he's even attractive. I would say I found him very attractive in Casablanca, even though he doesn't have those conventional hunky good looks. He's not Paul Newman. Paul Newman is my everything. I think he's the most gorgeous man who ever walked the earth. (laughs) Humphrey Bogart is not Paul Newman, but he just, he had this persona on screen. He's very strong, has such a strong presence when he's in a film. And just that everyman quality and just something about him clicks with people. Casablanca really changed his image. Ingrid Bergman had not been in Hollywood that long or made a lot of films by the time she made Casablanca. She was still pretty new, pretty young. This is really the film that helped catapult her to another level, and I'm sure it remains her most famous film. I know that when I first saw the film, I instantly fell in love with her. She's mesmerizing on the screen, and I do consider her one of my favorite classic Hollywood actresses. I've already talked about two of her films on this podcast 
in previous episodes. We've talked about the Ingmar Bergman film she did called Autumn Sonata with Liv Ullman, and I've talked about the Roberto Rossellini film Journey to Italy. She went through some very difficult things in her marriage to Roberto Rossellini. She made several films with him, and it was a big scandal when she married him and all kinds of things. I won't get into that, but that was later. (laughs) She was a big, big star by the time she got with Rossellini. The reason she became such a big star was because of Casablanca, and I think she's probably given better performances, in my opinion, like in Autumn Sonata, Gaslight, Notorious, Journey to Italy, but she'll always be known for this role, for sure. Um, Her beauty really is unsurpassed, and I remember thinking about how her skin glowed from the inside when she was in this film. Like, I remember being in in that theater at school, (laughs) watching this film, like watching these larger-than-life actors and actresses on the screen, and just the beauty of the black and white, and the way it made their skin look, and the way it made Ingrid's skin look. And she just was such a goddess, and like so otherworldly with her beauty. And she really does take your breath away when she's on screen. Like, I don't know how she did it. And she actually said of the film, quote, I feel about Casablanca that it has a life of its own. There is something mystical about it. It seems to have filled a need, a need that was there before the film, a need that the film filled, unquote. And that quote is shared in the Noah Eisenberg book, and I love it. I think he actually opens the book with it. It's really beautiful. She realized throughout her life that this film just had an effect on viewers. It gets its hooks into you. It it has this hold over you. And I would imagine that Casablanca is the entry way, <laughs> is the gateway for a lot of cinephiles and a lot of people who go on to become really big, passionate advocates advocates for cinema because watching this film it it takes you over it absolutely takes you over and mesmerizes you hypnotizes you right that's what a film like this can do and she realized that worldwide global impact that it had on people everywhere when they saw the film it has that magic in it it has that fairy dust that stardust that's something i said in my episode about singing in the rain it fascinates me the way this stuff comes together because a film does not just appear poof you know, like out of nowhere. It doesn't come to be in a vacuum. There are all kinds of people involved along the way. The screenwriter, the director, the wardrobe people, the actors that get chosen, all these million decisions that are made about a film. And somehow all of it comes together and we call it magic. Of course, you can pick it apart. It's like when you open up a computer or you open up a a machine and you see all the cogs and you see all the little bits and pieces that come together to make your computer work or your laptop work. But as a layman or as an ordinary person, you still don't totally understand how it all comes together. And then you've got a laptop and there's stuff on it. Like you you don't totally understand it. In the same way, like a film is a produced thing. It's a manufactured thing. All these people are involved in it. If just one thing were different, if, if you had the wrong screenwriter or you cast the wrong person or I don't know, just one piece of it and the whole thing could unravel and fall apart. But somehow when these perfect films come about, 
or these masterpieces or these things that we call classics, when they come along, it feels like they have just been completely preconceived and prefabricated somehow, (laughs) that they just came to be magically. And even when you take it apart and look at all the individual cogs and parts of it, you still don't understand how it all came together so perfectly and how a masterpiece was achieved, right? I think that's why I'm always so interested in like behind the scenes featurettes and director's commentary and because I'm just fascinated by how a work of art comes to be and how it is produced because when you watch it as a viewer and as a film lover, it just seems so perfect and it just seems like it came out of nowhere. But of course it didn't. Somebody was there. Many people were there making all these individual decisions and somehow it's a miracle really that we do get these classics, that we do get these masterpieces because at any time the whole thing could fall apart. It's so fragile and we could not have it at all. I mean, what if what if it hadn't been Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman? What if they had chosen some other actors, right? Like, you just don't know. And then we wouldn't have the film that we have, but somehow it all came together perfectly for this film. Conrad Veet is in this film and he plays an important part. It's very ironic that Conrad Veet plays a Nazi officer. He plays Strasser because he himself fled the Nazis in the 1930s and he went to live in England and he actually had um, a wife and she was Jewish. He was fiercely anti-Nazi and he was lucky to get out of Nazi Germany, obviously. Unfortunately, he died shortly after the release of Casablanca. It's really sad, actually. He does a really great job in this film and I just think it's really fascinating that he himself fled the Nazis. Dooley Wilson is Sam in the film. And he's such a big, crucial part of this film. He does a fantastic job. He's not on the screen a lot, but when he's there, he's so important. You know, he plays As Time Goes By. That is a recurring song throughout the film, as we know. And in some ways, he's an important intermediary between Ilsa and Rick. He's able, I think, at times to maybe diffuse some of that tension. Sometimes they don't talk directly to each other. They talk through Sam a bit and send messages or he tries to quiet things a bit and he plays an important role. There is this moment where Ilsa calls him boy and it's very jarring in the film. It's like she's not even American. Why would she call a black man boy? It's it's just a very jarring moment. It speaks to the racism that was common in Hollywood back then. As many of us know who like classic films like classic Hollywood, there is no way to deny the racism. There is no way to deny the way that black actors and black actresses were often either given stereotypical roles like maids or chauffeurs or some kind of role in service. It's a sad legacy of Hollywood, of classic Hollywood, and it has to be acknowledged. And in that moment when Ilsa calls Sam boy, the weight of racism is right there in that entire moment. And it's when she first gets to Rick's cafe, I think. She doesn't say his name because she doesn't want to reveal that she knows Sam, and so she refers to him as boy. People who may not be aware, boy 
was used to refer to black men in the South here in the United States during the Jim Crow era, an era of racial terror and violence against black people in the South. There were thousands of lynchings. The KKK had a resurgence in the 20th century, actually thanks to Hollywood, thanks to the film Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith. That film helped to reignite the KKK, unfortunately. During Jim Crow in the, in the 20th century, black men would be called boy. Even if they were grown men, that was the point. By white people, by white men, by white women, they would call black men boys. It is extremely offensive and insulting and degrading. It was very shocking to hear Ilsa say it in the film. I know I personally was just stunned by it, but it is, it's a relic of that time period, that racism, and it's undeniable. But Dooley Wilson does a a fantastic job in this film. Interestingly enough, Wilson could not play the piano. When you see him in the film, he's not playing the piano. Another person, Elliot Carpenter, was off screen playing it playing the actual music while Dooley Wilson sort of moved his hands over the piano keys and pretended like he was playing piano. He does do the singing though. All the singing that you hear from Dooley is really him. Finally, I want to note most of the actors in Casablanca were refugees or immigrants and I think this adds a power and authenticity to the film. Not only is the film about refugees, but it features a cast that understands the refugee experience. According to Noah Eisenberg in his book, quote, nearly all of the some 75 actors and actresses cast in Casablanca were immigrants. Among the 14 who earned a screen credit, only three were born in the United States. Humphrey Bogart, Dooley Wilson, and Joy Page, Jack Warner's stepdaughter who plays the Bulgarian refugee, Anina Brandel, unquote. So now I'm going to share with you all of my thoughts and feelings about Casablanca. before I started to record this episode, I noticed that there was this thing going around Twitter. Why am I on Twitter? Why do I continue to punish myself and be on that side? I don't know. I honestly don't feel very comfortable on social media. I never really know what to post. I'm someone who, I don't know, it's just really hard for me to be on social media, but I do it anyways because I do have things that I want to share and it's kind of necessary when you have a podcast too. And I do like to share stuff about cinema. But there was this question going around Twitter about choosing your favorite uh, five films that you think are perfect. It was like five perfect films or something like that. And I noticed a lot of people's answers. What you do is that you give your five and then you're supposed to tag like five people. I did it like I gave my five, but then I did not tag anybody else. (laughs) And my five films were Brief Encounter, which I have an episode about. I think Brief Encounter is perfection. I actually said that in my episode about it. It's just a perfect film to me. Letter from an Unknown Woman by Max Ophels. The Mirror by Andre Tarkovsky. Late Spring by Yasujiro Ozu. And Potter Panchali by Satya Jet Ray. Those were the five that I chose. It was hard. 
because I certainly could have chosen Casablanca, and I also could have chosen Singing in the Rain, which I also have an episode about. Both of these films are perfection to me, and I could have chosen many, many more. I could have chosen La Ventura by Michelangelo Antonioni. I think that film is pretty close to perfect. I could have chosen The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodore Dreyer. could have chosen any of Christoph Kishlovsky's films, like The Double Life of Veronique or Three Colors Blue. A million films I could have chosen. I didn't put Casablanca in that five, but I do consider it perfect. Like I said, there were a million films I could have chosen, and I did notice that a lot of other people with their choices of five films did put Casablanca in their five. And I definitely agree that this film has a perfection about it. There's something about how all of the pieces came together perfectly. When you rewatch it, it has all of that magic and beauty, everything that you probably felt the first time that you watched it. It's that kind of film. But I just thought it was interesting that thing was going around on Twitter and so many people chose Casablanca. I agree with that. And I think a lot of cinephiles consider this to be cinematic perfection or as close to perfection as you're going to get. And I am in total agreement with them that this film is cinema to me. And I think that movies are that flicker in the dark. They are that light in the dark. And they will always be that. Even though we watch stuff at home now and we don't go to the movie theaters as much, it is still about the light in the darkness for me. I don't know if I've talked about this on other episodes. I have this thing where I pretty much have to watch films at night. There are some films I can watch during the day, but I just have this proclivity, I guess you could call it, or this preference to watch films at night in the dark. Maybe it comes from that film appreciation class, right? Discovering all these films in the darkness. Or it could come from the fact that when I was a child, I used to have the TV on a lot at night when I went to bed back in the 90s. And I had my own little television and I would have Turner Classic Movies on at night and I would have black and white films on in the background when I was going to sleep. Maybe it's tied to that. To me, films are about the night. They're about the darkness. And the film itself, is a source of light and a source of beauty. And I'm interested, I guess, in that juxtaposition between light and dark. And I think it is the thing that gives us hope, the thing that makes us feel transcendence or makes us feel a sense of connection with the world or with humanity and other people. And I think we need that more than anything now. And Casablanca is that kind of film. I've noticed that during this COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic that we're all going through, I'm in the United States. I live in the rural South. It's a scary situation because the federal government here in the United States run by Donald Trump, who's president, I still can't believe that comes out of my mouth, is incompetent and negligent. And I think that what's happening right now is disgraceful. Tens of thousands of people have already died as I record this in the middle of April. And by the time you listen to this episode, that death toll will have gone up. I don't know what the future holds. It's very uncertain and it's very scary. And I find myself, I'm trying not to go out as much as possible like a lot of people. Right now we are on kind of a lockdown. It depends on what state you're living in. Some states did the shelter in place and the lockdown very quickly. I'm in a state that did it a little bit later. So I'm trying to stay in as much as possible. Only go out when I absolutely have to. I'm lucky in that I still have my job. 
job. I have food. I have a roof over my head. And I know that I'm very fortunate right now. But we don't know how life can change. And with this virus, nothing is for certain. So it's a very scary time. The virus is disproportionately affecting people of color, black Americans in particular, people who are immunocompromised or people who have health issues. A lot of people in this country are vulnerable and it's very scary. I find myself during this time really getting back to classic Hollywood. I find that films like this, these old Hollywood films, they're like a blanket or comfy socks. (laughs) They are a really big comfort to me, and you can watch these films over and over again. In Casablanca, for me, it's cinema, as I said. I can't help but be sentimental or emotional when I talk about it or when I rewatch it, because it really is an early memory of falling in love with a film. Casablanca is one of my earliest memories when I was a teenager of really falling in love with cinema. It's this blazing memory in my mind, so searing and unforgettable, and I think we all have those. It still shocks me what I remember from my childhood. I I can remember the most random things and then I can't remember what I did yesterday, but I can remember something from 20 years ago. I'm only 30, but I feel a lot of nostalgia for the past for sure. And I think cinema engages with that nostalgia. It engages with our memories. When you watch a film like Casablanca, you're not only watching the film in the present, you're also experiencing Experiencing your memories from when you first watched it. A film can be a memory thing in that way, like a time machine, and it can really catapult you back to a particular time in your life when you saw that film for the first time. And music has that power too, I think. And of course, when I rewatched this film for the podcast, I thought of that film appreciation class. And I thought about how Mrs. Ray, I remember her telling us about Sam getting misquoted so much. A lot of people think that that Ingrid Bergman or Humphrey Bogart said, play it again, Sam. You see that a lot in popular culture. Like the thing about Casablanca is that it has so permeated our culture here in America. There are so many phrases in it that have become regular things that people say. Here's looking at you, kid. We'll always have Paris. I don't stick my neck out for nobody. Or I stick my neck out for nobody. There's several phrases in it. And play it again, Sam, is kind of one of those. And also the one about of all the gin joints of all the world, she walks into mine. I know I paraphrased that. They didn't actually tell Sam to play it again. The real phrase is play it, Sam. They both tell him at different points in the film, right? And I remember Mrs. Ray telling us that, that everybody misquotes that phrase. And I bet at that age, I had already heard that phrase. I bet I had heard a lot of those phrases by the time I was a teenager. But I just have a very distinct memory of her telling us that he always gets misquoted, that it's not play it again, Sam. It's play it, Sam. So the Casablanca was released in 1942 and I just want to tell about some of the actors and the parts they play and then a little bit about director Michael Curtiz and then I'll get into all my other stuff. Claude Rains plays Captain Louis Renault and he's part of the Vichy police. Vichy government from of France in French Morocco at the time. Conrad Veet is the Nazi officer Major Strasser. Humphrey Bogart is Rick Blaine, an American in Morocco in Casablanca. Ingrid Bergman is Ilsa Lund. Paul Henry is Victor Laszlo, a leader of the resistance in Czechoslovakia. And can I just say... 
Paul Henry really was attractive. <laughs> like, I don't think I paid as much attention to him back in those days when I was a kid. But re-watching the film this time, I was like, Paul Henry is incredibly handsome. He really kind of amazed me. Now I want to see Now Voyager, that film that he does with Betty Davis. I need to watch that because I'm like, I need some more Paul Henry in my life. <laughs> he was very attractive in this film. And Peter Lorre is Senor Ugarte. Some say Ugarte, some say Ugarte. I'm not really sure what the official pronunciation of that would be. I think I'm going to say Ugarte because it kind of comes more natural to me. Now, this was directed by Michael Curtiz, and I got the Casablanca DVD. I actually have a double DVD that I found at the Dollar General. If you live in the rural South or in the South, you'll know that Dollar Generals are on like every corner or every few miles. And a few years ago, I went into a Dollar General and I used to look at the DVDs there. And I find I've actually been pretty lucky finding some classic movie DVDs at the Dollar General. I found one that had like five films in it of classic, mostly classic films, but they're like romantic films. There was Splendor in the Grass in that one. The Philadelphia Story was in that one and a few others. And then I also came across this double DVD, like a double feature type thing with Casablanca and the African Queen. On my Casablanca DVD, there's extra features. It has Roger Ebert's commentary and it has this short documentary called Michael Curtiz, The Greatest Director You Never Heard Of. And it was very illuminating about him. He's actually directed many classics, but I think the average person would not know his name. He's not a household name the way I would say John Ford or John Huston or Vincent Minnelli or a lot of other classic Hollywood directors are. He's directed not just Casablanca, but Mildred Pierce. I love that film. The Adventures of Robin Hood, Yankee Doodle Dandy. He won uh, a Best Director Oscar for Casablanca. He made a wide range of films over the course of his career, and he ended up directing over 100 films. He was born in Hungary and even directed that country's first feature film, which I'm sure was a big deal. He came to the United States in the 1920s and was hired by Warner Brothers Studio. While making Casablanca, Curtiz was actually trying to get his family out of Europe. He did save some of them, but several of his family members ended up at the death camp Auschwitz. It was both a death camp and it had a section that was also a concentration camp or had forced labor. So that's really sad. I actually did not know that. While he was making Casablanca, he was actually trying to save his family, but was not able to save all of them. So I just want to go through and my and give my analysis of this film. And what I'm going to do is highlight certain themes. I have a few of them and then talk about the way the film engages with those themes. Sometimes I go through a film chronologically and I talk about scenes, but with Casablanca, I felt like there were a lot of larger issues in the film that I really wanted to talk about. And I really wanted to weave together the personal and the political, the, the individual and the larger things at play in this film that I I think are important. One of the central things for me with Casablanca is the way it looks at refugees and its focus on refugees. And I think this is a particularly resonant issue because of 
our own things happening with refugees, immigrants, migrants right now here in the United States and globally. There's been a lot of upheaval the last few years due to war, climate change, instability. There's been a large amount of people having to leave their homes and or flee, flee their homelands, flee their countries because of violence or because they couldn't survive, all kinds of different reasons and having to go to different countries. And they've often, especially if they are from the Middle East or Africa or Latin America, they're often not accepted with humanity and warmth. Often they have very difficult experiences in the countries that they end up in. And I think that when I was watching Casablanca, obviously when I was a teenager, I didn't pick up as much on the political stuff um, in the film, but watching it now that I'm older and there's a different situation now in 2020, I do think that this film raises questions about refugees, about their lives, about their experiences. It makes us see the humanity of them. What's happening today, I think a lot about these things. I think a lot about immigrants and refugees. I've tried to watch different films about it and I eventually would like to do a couple of films about immigration. I'm doing research. The thing about the podcast that some people may not know is that I have films that I want to cover, but sometimes I do a lot of research because when I do these episodes, I do them every month. I do two episodes a month usually. And when I choose those two films, I choose them for a specific reason and I pair them together for a reason. And I see them sometimes as double features or further watching. Say you like one film, well then you might like the other film that I've paired it with. I I choose films for very specific reasons and I usually have a theme every month. So there are some films I really want to cover, but I don't have another film to pair them with. And I guess I'm just really particular about I want the two films that I choose to make sense together. I actually used to do three or four episodes a month. I don't know how I did that. I did it in the beginning. (laughs) If you go back to some of the earlier episodes, they're not edited like at all because I had a Chromebook. I don't know. When I started this podcast, it was totally on a lark. I didn't even have a microphone. I didn't have a microphone. (laughs) I really thought nobody would listen to it. I thought it would be nothing. I was basically just doing the episodes or or something like to share on social media. Like, hey, if somebody wants to listen to me rambling about films, it wasn't official. It wasn't. Over time, I got positive feedback from people who liked the episodes. And so I started to polish them. (laughs) I got better and I got a better laptop where I could actually edit the episodes. And I started to do research and I started to really fall in love with the act of crafting episodes and it continues to be something that I'm deeply passionate about. When I when I think about films, I just think about pairing them with something else. That way I do two episodes a month. So I do have some in the pipeline that I really want to that I really want to cover, but I don't know what to put them with. And so when I get in that situation, I do research and I'll try to, you know, say I want to do one particular film about immigration. Well, then I'll start to watch other films about immigration and see if I could pair it with that. I know it's sort of a tangent that I went on, but if you're interested in that, in some of the behind the scenes stuff and 
what I do, the episodes that you get, a lot of them I've been working on for months. I mean, I read a book for this episode. I read like most of a book about Casablanca just to talk about this film. I enjoy research. You know, I'm not saying I don't enjoy it, but I'm just saying like some of these episodes are months in the making, literally. Like I'm putting that much work and effort into them and it matters to me the quality. It matters to me that I'm putting something out and creating creating something that has good quality and has meaning. And so I would love to cover more films about immigration. And that's something that I am looking into. Sometimes I come up with a theme and I start watching films based on that theme and thinking about things that I might want to cover, movies that move me and that I think would be really good. And I think Casablanca, the refugee aspect of this film hit me really hard when I watched it this time. I think films about refugees and I guess Casablanca specifically, I think the issue of refugees or the issue of immigrants raises fundamental questions about who who counts as an American because a lot of the people in Casablanca are coming to the Americas. I don't know if they were necessarily all coming to the United States. Some of them might have been trying to get to South America. I know a lot of refugees did go to South America. Who counts as a citizen? What is the value of a human life and who or what determines that value? What is that value based on? What does it mean to not belong to a country? Why does your citizenship determine your humanity and level of rights in the world. These were some things that I got to thinking about both before, during, and after watching Casablanca. I am personally moved by the plight of of refugees and immigrants. I often think about like how do they do it? They leave a language and a homeland and a history and they embark on a new life that is uncertain. They are going to a place where they're not going to be treated with the humanity that they deserve. I know here in the United States we have a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric and language and racist language in the way we talk about Mexican people, the way we talk about Hispanic and Latino people. That's a problem and the way that they're treated on the border when they're crossing the border when they come here, the way that they are caged the way that they are not given health care when they're sick, the, the violence done against them. It's terrible. And these are people fleeing violence. These are women and children often, and also men fleeing violence and war and instability in their home countries. And they come here and I think, my God, what if I had to flee? What if I had to go somewhere? I would want to be welcomed with open arms and helped and treated like a human being. And I guess if because I'm white, maybe that's how I would be treated in another country. I've never, you know, gone to another country. I've never been in that situation. It's often immigrants, refugees, who are from Africa, as I said, Latin America, the Middle East, who are not treated the same. Immigrants from Sweden and Ireland and Britain, they're not the immigrants who are being attacked by Donald Trump and the the right wing. They're not the ones being called rapists. It's brown people and black people who are being accused of those things and being dehumanized. So I just wonder, like, what is it like to not hear your mother tongue? 
to leave the home you knew, to leave family and loved ones, to leave the tastes and the sights and the sounds and the textures of a homeland that you were born in, and to then be treated so harshly, you know, if they are African or Middle Eastern or a person of color. It's heartbreaking. And it's interesting because before I watched Casablanca, I actually went through this thing. <laughs> I get obsessive about directors and films sometimes. And I got to watching some films by Margaret Von Trotta. She's this really amazing German filmmaker. I watched her film Rosa Luxemburg. I watched The German Sisters. And I watched her film Hannah Arendt. And in preparation for watching Hannah Arendt, I have not read any of her writings. I didn't know a ton about her except for, of course, we all know about the phrase, the banality of evil. So I sought out a documentary about her called Vita Activa, The Spirit of Hannah Arendt. And just by coincidence, I watched this documentary and there was this part of it that was so compelling and fascinating to me. As I was watching it, I realized this would be really useful in a discussion about Casablanca. So Arendt talks about refugees. In the film, they there's a voiceover of a woman reading Hannah Arendt's writings. And she reads out this quote. I don't know what exactly it's from, but it's from something that Hannah Arendt had written. In it, Arendt is talking about the refugees that were created by the First World War, but I think what she says has relevance now. She sees the refugee as someone who is both stateless and rightless, a person without rights. That was the part that stuck with me. And I guess I had never thought about it in that way. Uh, One person in the documentary, a close friend of Arendt, says that even criminals have rights if they're part of a country, right? If If you're a criminal and you're in your home country, you have rights. There's due process. The refugee does not have that. And so Arendt wrote, and this is what they include in the documentary, so that's what I'm quoting from, quote, the explosion of the First World War touched off a chain reaction in which we have been called ever since and which nobody seems to be able to stop. Its civil wars were not only bloodier and crueler than all their predecessors, they were followed by migrations of groups who were welcomed nowhere and could be assimilated nowhere. Once they had left their homeland, They remained homeless. Once they had left their state, they became stateless. And once they had been deprived of their human rights, they were rightless. They became the scum of the earth, superfluous. So the insane mass manufacture of corpses in Nazi time was preceded by the historical preparation of living corpses of refugees, unquote. And that passage absolutely stunned me. They are rightless. That is the refugee. They almost exist in this liminal space, this limbo. They're not considered a citizen of the country they've come to, but they're not part of the country that they left. They are seen as less than. They are seen as superfluous, as Arendt puts it. And they become the scapegoat. They become the thing that people project all of their fears and anxieties onto as well. The way we saw Donald Trump do that in his campaign. The the refugee or the immigrant um, or the migrant, they have no rights. They're not seen as people. They're not protected wherever they go. 
There is no protection. There is no due process for them. And what a frightening predicament to be in. What a frightening state to be in. To be stateless and to be rightless. And I don't think most of us will ever know what that's like. To not have a nationality. To not have a home. And to be hated by the place where you go. You're, you're leaving one horror and then the place where you end up, they hate you. Obviously, the refugees in Casablanca had to worry about this as well. When they are in Casablanca, they are rightless. They are vulnerable. They are subject to exploitation. And so you see the plight of the refugee in this film. And from what I saw, I think in that Michael Curtiz documentary, they said he added some of that to the film or to the script. He really wanted that spotlight put on refugees and the plight, the plight of them and what they go through. I was struck by Arendt's words as I watched the opening scene of Casablanca, where we're shown these maps and archive footage of refugees, and we're told about their journey to Casablanca and their desperate search for, for visas. I'm glad that they had that narration at the beginning, where we're told that because of the rise of Nazism and the war, people were trying to escape Europe. They wanted to get to the Americas. It was so complicated. They needed to get to Lisbon, but they couldn't go there directly. They had to go this round about way through Paris to Marseille, across the Mediterranean, and finally to Casablanca in French Morocco. And once there, people used, quote, money, influence, or luck, unquote, to get visas to Lisbon and onto the New World, as the person calls it, the Americas. But the other refugees have to wait in Casablanca, the ones who are not able to get visas. The visas are the holy grail and they are crucial to the entire film. Everybody in Casablanca wants to get the hell out of it. (laughs) The refugees want a way out. Their wait there is interminable. Their futures are uncertain. And so this is the global context and the history in which the film is set, a context that is essential. You know, many films keep the world out. It's about the private universe of the characters. But Casablanca is deeply engaged with the world and with the geopolitical events going on in 1941, which is the year the film is set. The characters are really cogs in the machinery of war, and we see that. In real life, many refugees who went to Casablanca were Jewish. Morocco was under French rule at that time and controlled by the Vichy government. And as we know, the Vichy government collaborated with the Nazis. In my research for this film, I I came across this article that was sort of like a book review. And the book was by Meredith Hindley called Destination Casablanca, Espionage and the Battle for North Africa in World War II. And that's where they said that a lot of the refugees were Jewish who went to to Morocco and to Casablanca. And in that article, and all of my sources, will be in the show notes of the episode. I always do that. In that article, Henley also talked about the Sultan of Morocco, who I guess was the leader of the country, Sidi Mohammed, and how he actually tried to protect the Jewish community there in Morocco, but there wasn't a lot that he could do because of the Vichy government. His hands were really tied, it seems like. But I thought that was interesting that it is true that Casablanca took all these refugees and many of them were Jewish. Interestingly enough, Warner Brothers Publicity Department per 
purposely pushed the film out sooner than planned. It should have come out in 1943, but it came out in November 1942 to coincide with the Allied invasion of North Africa and the taking of Casablanca by General Patton and his troops. So there was a very purposeful (laughs) reason why they released the film when they did. I also read that it went into even wider release in 1943. So the film gives us the larger world and then it zeroes in on the smaller individual human dramas of the people in Casablanca, particularly those who gather at Rick's Cafe American or Rick's Cafe. is I'm going to refer to it as Rick's Cafe throughout this episode. We see different refugees at the beginning of the film. Like there's a man in the cafe. He says he'll never get out. He'll die in Casablanca. One woman is selling her jewelry. There is a great deal of exploitation of these refugees. People have to pay high sums of money for visas or at times women were forced to do sexual things with very powerful men. The refugees have to deal with unsavory characters who want to profit from their despair and their pain. The desperation of these refugees is clear. Everyone wants to get out. They want to get to a safer place. And somebody who takes advantage of that is Senor Ugarte, played by Peter Lorre, as I said. He's someone who profits handsomely (laughs) and charges large sums for visas. And as we all know, he gets a hold of those precious letters of transit after to the murder of some German couriers, and he plans to make a lot of money off them, and he gives them to Rick to safeguard. Once Rick has the letters of transit in his hands, he can do what he wants to do with them, especially after Ugarte is arrested and executed. And the big question in the film is what will he do? Will he keep them for himself and allow him and Ilsa to run away together at the end of the film? Or will he give them to Ilsa and Laszlo? It's the moral question of the film. Do what's right for you or for the greater good. And that's a theme that I'll return to, that theme of personal sacrifice. At one point, a man wants to buy the cafe and actually mentions Sam in a degrading sort of way. And Rick says he's not into buying and selling human beings. But the man says that the hottest commodity in Casablanca is human beings. The refugees in some ways are being bought and sold. Their lives are controlled by the whims of the men who take advantage of them. It's sobering, the exploitation, and it still happens. Think about the large sums of money that that men get for bringing immigrants from Latin America and Mexico over the border to the U.S. People save up money for that, and they're definitely being charged a lot and taken advantage of because they're so desperate to get to the United States. So that exploitation still happens or I remember when there was a lot more focus on Syrian refugees a few years ago during the Syrian war there was more focus on the boats that were crossing the Mediterranean that were going to Italy and places like that also immigrants that were coming from Africa as well and how they would all get on these boats and sometimes the boats would sink and people would die it's just unspeakable absolutely unspeakable what people have to go through to try to survive and it's either die in their homeland or die on the way to some better life or some or not necessarily a better life but a life (laughs) to just be alive there's a very powerful film called the crossing that i watched a few years ago and it looked at some syrian refugees who got on this boat made it to europe and i think one of the women in that film said that i think she said something like it's not necessarily about having a better life but it's about just having a life at all some 
somebody in that film, I want to say, said that. And it always stuck with me. And that's one of the most powerful films about refugees that I've ever seen. It's a very intimate documentary. You care very much about the people in it. And I think something similar happens with Casablanca. Like, you care about these people. You care about Laszlo and Ilsa and care about the people at the cafe and their individual dramas and struggles. Or like I think of the woman, the Bulgarian woman who's trying to get enough money to buy a visa. And remember Rick sort of rigs the roulette game so that she'll win a lot of money and be able to get the visas. You you feel the desperation of these people and it's really heartbreaking. So I think the theme of refugees, migrants, immigrants is very important important. It's an important one and it resonates even today at a time when, especially as it, as climate change accelerates, I think we're going to have more and more of it happening. And the ensuing instability in many countries, especially the instability in the Middle East that we see, I think more refugees are going to be created. The thing is, is that my country, the United States, helps to create that instability all around the world and then wants to bitch when people have to escape it and come here. Well, it's the least we could do, I think, to take you in, especially when we've messed up your country and destroyed your country. So we love to pull the strings in other countries, but we don't like it when it's done to us, do we? Another important theme in this film is the anti-fascism message. This was a film created while World while World War II was raging, and they didn't know the end, but they certainly saw the evil and the danger firsthand. Many of the people in the cast were immigrants or refugees, especially from Europe, um, some of them from Nazi Germany. They knew the danger firsthand. And I think the character of Victor Laszlo, played by Paul Henry, that hunky, beautiful Paul Henry is important in the film because he represents a hero and a member of the resistance. All across Europe at this time, there were there were resistance movements against fascism and the Nazis. There was resistance in Italy, France, Germany, obviously, and many other countries. Victor Laszlo represents those people who fought a brutal battle for freedom and often lost their lives. While Rick sticks his neck out for nobody at the beginning, Laszlo is a courageous man. And you can see why Ilsa loves him so much. Laszlo has been in a concentration camp and was even in one when Ilsa fell in love with Rick in Paris. Ilsa had thought that Laszlo was dead or had been killed at the time. And she didn't know that he was actually alive when she was having her relationship with Rick. Usually the heroic figure in American cinema is the American right? That does happen as Rick begins to change in the film from a place of neutrality to active participation against the Nazis. In the past, we're told he's engaged in other battles against oppressive governments, like in Spain against Franco. I'll talk more about Rick's neutrality in a moment. The anti-Nazi message was, of course, a bit of propaganda. There's no denying it. The film is not neutral. Though some of the characters are, the film itself is not neutral. It takes a side against fascism by showing the brutality of the Nazis, especially through a character like Major Strasser, played by Conrad Veidt. I think it's a message that resonates even now with the rise of right-wing fascistic governments around the world, including here in the United States. One of the most emotional and powerful moments in the film is the singing of the Marseillaise, the French national anthem. 
Um, and I apologize if my pronunciation is not perfect. It's a political moment and it's a moment of resistance. I think a lot about resistance. I really do. And what it looks like and how we do it. This is not a resistance that comes with guns and violence on the battlefield. It's a moment of emotional resistance. And it reminds me of a film I want to cover on the podcast by Jean-Pierre Melville called Le Silence de la Mer, The Silence of the Sea. In a similar way, that film is set during World War II, and it's about a subtle form of resistance, an emotional type resistance. And it's a subject that's really compelling to me. This scene of them singing the Marseillaise is late in the film. The Germans are at Rick's Cafe, and they're singing the German national anthem. Well, Laszlo comes in and he leads the cafe in an emotional and very loud rendition of the French national anthem. They do it so loud that they drown out the Germans. And at one point we see one woman is crying. I think she says something like, Viva la France. It's a patriotic moment, no doubt. All these refugees from different countries are gathered together in one room, singing one song, and they're almost singing with one voice to drown out the voices of their oppressors. It is an act of defiance. It is dangerous. It might seem like a small act, but during the war, people resisted in ways both big and small. Think of Sophie Scholl and the White Rose distributing anti-Nazi pamphlets or leaflets or something like that. That's all it took for them to be executed. Small acts back then could come with grave punishment, and them singing that national anthem, that Marseillaise, actually leads to the cafe getting shut down. There are consequences to it. It's an incredibly moving scene. And it comes off as spontaneous and in the moment, all these people singing this song together and singing against their oppressors. This scene also holds importance even today. For example, after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in 2015, French politicians burst out singing the Marseillaise. After the Paris attacks, which happened also in 2015, later in the year, when over 100 people were murdered by ISIS terrorists, and that was when the Bataclan happened. People spontaneously sang the anthem, both in France and around the world, when they would come together to pay respects to the victims and to mourn and to bear witness. It's a reminder of solidarity and finding a way to resist evil in whatever way we can. Back in the 1940s, that was the Nazis they represented the horror, right, and the evil. Today, it's different forms of evil, whether it be terrorism, white supremacy, or fascism. We must always resist, always. I think it's more important than ever to find ways to resist. Another important theme in this film is personal sacrifice for the greater good. That's something we're seeing during the, during this pandemic, and I'll get into that later. I think Rick's transition from neutrality to taking a stand is an important part of the film. Rick is, at the beginning, he's neutral, cynical, distant from the people around him. He doesn't really get involved, and this mirrors the American position before entering the war. There's a world-weary look to him. It's in the wrinkles of Bogart's haggard face. And something he says a lot is, I stick my neck out for nobody. He says that a couple of times in the film. The thing is, 
at the beginning of Casablanca, Rick is really consumed by his own pain and heartache over Ilsa leaving him and now appearing again with Laszlo. It shatters his world in a lot of ways. I almost get the sense that the cafe was a place of protection or safety for him. Maybe something that he created to get over the heartache of that breakup. His heartbreak is visceral in the film. You can feel it through Bogart's face. He thought he'd exorcised Ilsa from his life, and I think she assumed the same, that she was free of him. But when the two of them confront each other again, they realize that they still have feelings for each other and that they really are forever connected. As the film wears on, Rick's focus on himself shifts to his focus on the larger issues. He starts out hating Ilsa and in the end he realizes that in order for her to be safe and to literally stay alive, he must let her go. His love must be strong enough to let her go, and he must do it for the greater good. Laszlo is part of the resistance, and he's doing important work, and he needs to get to the Americas. Ilsa is also part of that work. In whatever way, I mean, it's not explicit that she's participating in the resistance, but she is a support to Laszlo, and that helps him do his work. Now, of course, we know that Rick could never run off with Ilsa anyways because of the production code in Hollywood at that time. There was no way they'd show a man running off with a married woman in this way. At the same time, I think this ending actually works well because it lets Rick be the hero and it forces him to engage in personal sacrifice that is hard. And let's just be honest, the greatest love stories and the greatest films about romance, they usually end with the two lovers not being able to be together, either because of death or circumstance. So that's really in keeping with great love stories. Sometimes, oftentimes, let's be honest, the right thing is the hard thing. If it were easy to be moral, then we'd all be good and we'd all do the right thing at all times. It's not easy for Rick to let Elsa get on that plane with Laszlo, but that's what makes Rick's choice all the more extraordinary. That's why we remember it and are in awe of it because we don't know if we could do it ourselves. Rick is able to see beyond himself and his circumstances and do something that helps people that he will never no. And I think this message resonates even more now with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. It was very interesting to watch this film in the midst of the pandemic. Not only was Casablanca an escape for me because of its cinematic beauty and perfection, but it also made me think about the historic time period that I myself am living through. This is not a world war by any means, but it has radically upended hundreds of millions of lives, and we don't know the full ramifications of what's happening. People are dying here in the United States from COVID-19 at alarming rates. The government is incompetent and I'd say criminal and the suffering here is widespread. As I record this episode, we have the most cases of any country in the world. We have the most deaths of any country in the world. There is nothing being done really to stop it except for the social distancing measures and the lockdown. But even that is being loosened in some places. There's already calls to reopen the economy. We've only been in this lockdown maybe a month at this point. There's a lot of danger here. Even worse, there is no end in sight. What we have to do right now is think of the greater good 
We have to be willing to engage in personal sacrifice by social distancing, staying in our homes, limiting our contact with others, using hand sanitizer and face masks. If we get COVID-19 as individuals, we might be okay. If you're healthy, you might be okay. And it might not personally affect you negatively depending on your own health risks and the access to care that you get, but you could be a carrier and spread it to someone else who is more vulnerable or whose body reacts differently and they could die as a result. We have to feel responsibility for one another. We have to put communal needs above our own individual ones. We can't just do it through the social distancing, but like with the government stimulus package, there should have been more in that to send money to people because the thing is, is that we're having to balance public health with economic survival. I understand people who are upset that they don't have jobs and that things are hard and they don't have an income and people are lined up at food banks. The thing is, is that that could have been avoided if the government had sent enough money to people. People would be able to pay their rent. They would be able to buy food. It is not a failure of people, it's a failure of the government to not do that. And that's not what we're doing. There is help through unemployment and then a one-time check that we've gotten. Not everybody can access that unemployment. For some people, it's taking weeks for them to get the unemployment. So it's not a panacea for everybody. That is the big conflict right now is people need to be able to pay rent and have food and have jobs, right? But if people congregate and go out and do all this stuff and they start going to restaurants and they start going here and going there, then hospitals are going to be overwhelmed with people who are sick. It's a mess, right? We have to have that sense of responsibility for for everybody, that communal responsibility. And we don't have that here in the United States. That's why you had a stimulus bill that gave billions and billions to corporations and things like that and then is falling short and failing people, you know, small businesses and everyday people who are having to go to food banks is that we don't, we don't mind bailing out banks and bailing out Wall Street and bailing out corporations, but we don't have that sense of let's take care of everybody. Let's be communal and let's give everybody enough money to survive on to get through this. So that's what's lacking in the response. We also do not have universal health care or single payer health care in this country. And so your experience is going to be different according to what you have access to. And tens of millions of people don't have any health care coverage or insurance. So we are a, so- a society that is very individualist and it's not easy for us, nor does it come naturally for us to be communal, to think in terms of the greater good. And I think that's why we're seeing such terrible results with all of this. We have a president who's very selfish, very self-centered. The virus requires personal sacrifice. The response to the virus requires personal sacrifice, but so many people are not willing to do that. Some think that the deaths are justifiable if it means the economy can get up and running. It's a horrific thing to contemplate or to say out loud. People's lives are expendable and disposable. I don't know what the future holds living in a country that believes that, that believes that my life is worthless. I know I'm terrified though. We're in the chaos of this pandemic and we cannot see the other side of it yet. How many people will we lose? I know it's already too many. 
I know it's already too many that the response has been horrific and I think that there needs to be an investigation into it at some point in the future. The same way we had the 9-11 commission, we need to have the COVID-19 commission later on because this is a failure. This is a massive, massive failure on the part of the government and what's happening here in the United States. No doubt about it. And that message of personal sacrifice is important And it's one that we should listen to. And it's one that is very present in Casablanca, where at the end, Rick gives the letters of transit to Laszlo and Ilsa. He does not go off with Ilsa. He gives them freedom. He gives them a chance to get out and sacrifices his own comfort or his own escape that he could have had with the woman that he loves. And he could have had this great life with Ilsa. And he gave that up. But he gave it up for something more important than himself. And he knew that he was giving it up for a reason. And he knew that what he was doing was moral and right. And so that's an important message in the film. For all its fame, Casablanca is mainly considered a great love story. It is the romance in this film that I think makes it such a classic for a lot of people. And for me, what I love about this film is that even though there's this big historical context of the Second World War, the film really humanizes this big historical event that is so massive and so hard to comprehend. And it really shows two people who are caught in the machinery of war. Actually, if you think about it, the war was made of millions of different people. Millions of people who were affected in unique ways for the most part. From Victor Laszlo in the concentration camp to Rick and Ilsa's love story in Paris, which was going on during the time that he was in the concentration camp. Everybody was experiencing this event but in different ways, depending on the country you were in. And the war was very different for people in the United States than it was for people in Germany or France. And through this film, we get to see two people or several people and the way that the war impacts their lives. The love story is really central. Many of the film's most famous lines come from those flashbacks to Ilsa and Rick's love story when they were falling in love in Paris in 1940. The lines, here's looking at you kid, we'll always have Paris, kiss me as if it were the last time. I remember loving that section of the film when they were in Paris together. They're so different in those sections than they are in Casablanca, of course, because they're living sort of in the before. The war was still going on. The war had started in 1939, but the Nazis had not invaded France yet. So they got to have this sort of Edenic time where they were falling in love. And even though the war was raging, it wasn't on their doorstep yet. And that's always, it's always very different when something's happening far away from you and when it's happening in your own backyard. So I remember loving this segment of the film where they're falling in love because because you get to see them in a whole new way. When they're in Casablanca, for the most part, there's a lot of crying. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of sadness. You know, Ingrid Bergman's face is luminous, but sorrowful in a lot of the Casablanca part. And Rick's face is very weathered and wrinkled and haggard. He's weary. He's been worn down by everything that's happened. So has she. They're in a frightening part of their lives. But when we see them in Paris, Ingrid is smiling 
smiling. And I, I just remember loving that, loving the happiness of the two of them together. And Rick smiles a lot. Humphrey Bogart smiles. He's not cynical. He's not hard in those Paris scenes. He's in love. He is a man in love. I remember loving the champagne glasses and when they would drink and he would say, here's looking at you kid. And I just love that. I loved the way that they looked at each other with so much passion and attraction and It is a very romantic film, especially in that part. Ingrid was in her late 20s and Bogart was in his 40s, as I said earlier. There was actually a height difference between the two of them, about two inches. She was about two inches taller than Humphrey Bogart. And I read in one of my, one of the articles that I did while researching the film, Curtis had Bogart stand on things to make him taller than Ingrid. And sometimes he would even sit on cushions when they were doing the scenes where they were sitting. I thought that was kind of interesting. (laughs) I also read that they didn't have a lot of chemistry off the film that on the set. I don't know if they were sort of chilly with each other, but they didn't, they didn't socialize a lot. I don't think they necessarily had a lot in common. And I don't think that's uncommon to hear about with some of the films, but I do think they have a wonderful chemistry on screen, even though there is that age difference and he's older. Although you do see that in a lot of the classic Hollywood films. There was a big age difference in another film that I talked about, Singing in the Rain by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan. Gene Kelly was much older than Debbie Reynolds in that film. So age differences weren't as big of a deal back in that time. But even though there is that big difference between the two of them and their looks are quite different and you know Ingrid is incredibly gorgeous. But as I said, Humphrey Bogart does have um, a handsomeness that I didn't quite expect. They have a wonderful chemistry and you absolutely believe that these two people ended up together and were, were falling in love. When Ilsa and Rick were falling in love in Paris in 19- 1940. At that time, Ilsa thought that Laszlo was dead and that he had been killed in a concentration camp. So at that time, her love for Rick is not just romantic. It's a kind of rebirth. It's a salvation because it comes in the aftermath of profound loss. Perhaps she thought she'd never love again. Perhaps she was completely lost after hearing about Laszlo's death and having endured the murder of her husband. So she thought Rick comes along at a time when she needs him the most. I think that's what makes their love story so powerful too for me is that in the mind of Ilsa, her husband has just died. Her husband's just been murdered. Imagine the trauma of that loss and the grief. And then Rick comes into her life and I think he's like a life raft for her. Something for her to hold on to and cling to in her time of desperation and fear and all of these things that she must be going through. I think the people who appear in our lives at our lowest points often become the people we develop the closest attachment to. Rick thinks that he's been abandoned in Paris. As you know, He and Ilsa are supposed to escape together after the Nazis invade Paris and invade France, but she never shows up at the train station. It's only later in Casablanca, 
when Ilsa re-enters his life that he learned she didn't show up at the train station because she'd heard that Laszlo was actually alive. And so her life with Rick had to be cut off so that she could return to her life with Laszlo. But her bond with Rick is still there because he offered her comfort and love at a time when she needed it most. Now, when they're dating in Paris, they decide to not give a lot of information about themselves. She just says that she had a husband, but he died. That's all that Rick really knows about her. He doesn't really know a ton about her, but he is there for her and he cares for her. And I think that makes a big difference for her. I think in many ways, Ilsa is someone who's caught between two worlds that are represented by two men. So she's not just caught between two men. She's also caught between two worlds, I think. She's torn between the valor of Victor Laszlo and the strength of Rick. Each of these men represent a different life, a different possibility for her. She can either be part of the resistance with Laszlo or she could have a more normal life with Rick. Rick seems to win out in the end when she's willing to meet with him and leave Casablanca with him. But it's Rick who also insists that she go with Laszlo in the end. Of course, I couldn't ignore the fact that Ilsa isn't really given a choice in it. Any of this. She isn't asked what she wants. She goes along with what Rick has decided for them, which is not surprising since she does say to him that he has to do the thinking for both of them, as I'm sure you remember from the film. She doesn't know what to do. I think she's very attached to both of these men for different reasons. Laszlo came into her life at an early age, taught her a lot, affected her, and then Rick comes into her life and he has this pull and this power over her as well. I just find that kind of compelling the way that she is torn between these two men for very valid reasons and doesn't quite know what to do or which one to choose. And I have to wonder, are there really two love stories in this film? And I think there kind of is. I think Ilsa loves both of these men deeply. Her loyalties are split, but in the end, like Rick, she knows what the right thing to do is. And that's to stay with her husband, Laszlo. Did she ever have another choice? To abandon Laszlo would be unforgivable she'd probably be judged and attacked for it. And of course, Hollywood could not allow that possibility or give full agency to this woman to make her own decisions. I think that's very clear. But I do think in some ways it's a film, we talk a lot about her relationship with Rick, but I think there's another love story in the film with her and Laszlo. And I feel, I feel her conflict, you know, between these two men and what they represent. I haven't been in that particular situation, but I know that, especially especially at a young age. I think she met Laszlo when she was quite young. I know that the people that come into our lives when we are young can have a profound effect on us and shape us. I know I've had people like that in my life. They can shape the way you see things and the things that you like and who you become. And there's a big attachment to people like that, even when you have to cut off that attachment, even when the relationship has run its course and maybe it's no longer a nurturing one or one that you should have in your life. So I understand Ilsa's attachment to Laszlo, but then here's Rick who also offered love and comfort at a difficult time in her life and she feels this connection to him too. So that's tough. 
that's a tough decision. It's interesting to note that the cast, including Ingrid Bergman, did not know the ending of the film as they were making the film. They didn't know if Ilsa would run away with Rick or Laszlo. Ingrid's performance had to make room for both of those possibilities, and I think as a result, you feel her conflict, her attraction to both men to the point where you yourself as a viewer don't know who she'll end up with either. There is a suspense about the film, right? Where you don't know what's going to happen. Is she going to go off with Rick? Is she going to go off with Laszlo? In the end, she goes off with Laszlo. I think we're compelled by love affairs like this where the two lovers can't be together. It's it's such a big theme in, in so many of the films, so many films, so many stories from, you know, Romeo and Juliet is a really big one. It always seems like the big classic love stories, the, the lovers can never be together. Not only is this film an anti-fascist film and it has that political message to it, but it's also considered a great love story and that's one of the reasons why it endures. In the end, it's their love for each other, Rick and Ilsa's, that guides them. They want to be together, but the circumstances do not permit it. Rick knows that there is something larger at stake than their personal feelings. Sometimes love does require that personal sacrifice, as I talked about earlier, and loving someone can mean seeing that you aren't the right person for them or that the relationship cannot work out. And that's what we see in this love story. We see a love story. Actually, this is a little bit of a different love story because usually what prevents the two lovers from being together is like illness or death like with Romeo and Juliet, right? Or think of love story or something like that. It's a person dying, usually. There's some kind of tragedy involved. Or a more recent film would be something like The Notebook. But with Casablanca, it's actually, they can't be together because of larger circumstances, because of historical circumstances. They make that choice. They make a conscious choice not to be together. And they make a personal sacrifice not to be together. So that's an interesting twist a little bit to this love story. Think of Titanic. That's another example. Like tragedy tears them apart. Death tears them apart. But in Casablanca, that's not what happens. Neither one of them dies. There is nothing like that that prevents them from being together. It's the fact that she needs to be with Laszlo and there is a greater good at stake than just the personal feelings that Rick and Ilsa might have for each other. There's something bigger. Them not ending up together is the result of, a, of personal sacrifice and of a conscious choice that we cannot be together because of this and you need to be with this person. And I just wanted to say that with these love stories, especially classic Hollywood, I really love the kissing in classic Hollywood films. I've been watching more of the old Hollywood going back to some of these films. I have a long list of stuff that I want to watch. I never, I just, I don't prioritize classic Hollywood the way some people do. I tend to watch a lot of French cinema, things like that, or I like documentaries. I'm really big into documentaries, but lately I've been prioritizing like classic Hollywood musicals and different films from the old Hollywood era or the golden age of Hollywood. And something that 
that strikes me when I watch the love stories or the romantic films is the kissing. I just love it. And there was a production code back then. There's like pre-code movies and, and then movies that came after that production code. The the sex was really toned down in a lot of these films. You couldn't show certain things. Like you couldn't show Ilsa running off because she's married. She can't leave her husband. That wouldn't be allowed. Or something I remember is, when you know, when you watch old films or you watch TV shows, even people who are married are in two different beds. They never would even show people in a bed together. So there was a lot of censorship that went on around sex. But ironically, I do think some of these films, even though they don't have a lot of sex in them, can be sexy or sensual or still be very romantic. Like you don't necessarily need to show all of that. There can be the sexual tension. There can be the attraction. There can be the way the actors look at each other, the look in their eyes or or something like that. And then when they finally do kiss, it's like so climactic in a way. Like finally, there's like a release. There's a catharsis when the two people finally kiss. And the kissing is just so romantic to me. It's like deep and long and it's like their mouths just melt together. I I am so in love with the romance of it. Give me that any day (laughs) over some of the sex that I see in films these days or over, you know, very degrading and violent pornography that is so mainstream now on the internet and that people of younger and younger ages are being exposed to. And it's incredibly horrific, I think. Give me this representation of love and romance. I love the kissing in classic Hollywood. And it is tame. It is what it is. But I just personally love it. I love seeing these these people kiss this way. You know, when Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman would kiss in Casablanca, I was just swooning. It's that feeling of swooning, right? Um, Or seeing Gene Kelly kiss anybody in any film. That always makes me swoon. Or Paul Newman (laughs) or Marlon Brando. I just... I love that classic Hollywood kissing. I'm absolutely in love with it. And the last thing that I wanted to touch on is the nostalgia in this film and the way it, watching it for the podcast, it just really stood out to me, the scenes in Paris. And I just want to linger on them for a little bit. As I said, the love affair between Ilsa and Rick is in the past. It's in Paris before and during the German invasion of France in 1940. So much of this film is about nostalgia, especially the relationship between Ilsa and Rick. A good example is when Ilsa shows up in Casablanca and she sees Sam, Sam recognizes her because Sam knew them in Paris. I didn't mention that earlier. Sam was there. He was playing piano. He was in the same place where they were falling in love in another cafe in Paris. So he is he's a reminder of their love. He is a witness to their love in Paris. When Ilsa sees Sam, it's so interesting that what does she do? She asks him to play the song. And this song is absolutely so important as time goes by. It has become such a classic because of this film. It might have been well known before the film. I know that I think it was written like a decade before Casablanca even came out. But I remember watching the film when I was a teenager in that film appreciation class, and I loved this song. It stays in your head, right? That's her song. That's their song, Rick and Ilsa. 
It's the song that bonds them together. It's the song that is a reminder of their love, a reminder of their time together in Paris. When he starts to sing the song, you can see on her face the way it moves her. And I think music can be very powerful. Songs can be these like memory machines catapulting us back into the past. It can be immediate when you hear a song. It's it's stunning, right? When you hear something from your childhood or when you was you were a teenager and you're just right back there in that time in your life, it releases some kind of chemical in you or in your brain. I think it must really. It must release some kind of chemical because I find myself listening to songs from the past more. Songs from the 90s, the 1990s, for instance, which is a time when I was a kid, when I was happy and my life was better. And I I do that a lot. And I find that music to be so comforting, really. Or watching films from the past or things that I grew up. Or sometimes I like to watch films that are set in a particular decade. Sometimes I really like to watch films set in the 1990s just so I can see the fashion and the decor and all of that. Like I just, I I get a high off of it. Ilsa's very emotional about the song because of what it brings to the surface, which is her love affair with Rick, memories of that love affair, memories of Paris. That's the thing is when you see Ingrid Bergman listening to this song, you feel the nostalgia that she herself is experiencing. You can almost see the memories flash or flicker in her eyes. And it's like a siren song. She knows in that scene that playing as time goes by will lure Rick to her in the cafe. And that's what happens. This is before they've even met again in Casablanca. He's only kind of seen her from afar or, and this is when they finally meet again and talk. And it's the song that brings him to her. And Rick comes out and sees her and she looks up at him with like these tears in her eyes and he looks at her and the heartbreak is all over his face. That's a very powerful scene when she, when she plays, has that song played. And then later that night after that scene, Rick's getting drunk and he tells Sam to play as time goes by. The thing about this song is that he would never let Sam play it ever. When Sam is playing it, Rick comes out and he's like, I told you to never play that song. He, there's a scene, right, where he says that it's like this untouchable thing. It's this unbearable song because of the nostalgia, because of the memories that the song brings up. And of course, memories are attached to our emotions. So once we start to remember, we start to feel and it's a, it can be a scary thing and it can be very, uncontrollable and he but he wants Sam to play it again he says you played it for her you can play it for me he wants to hear the song because the song like triggers the nostalgia the song triggers the memories and he wants those memories I think he has suppressed and buried the memories for for a while but he's finally ready to look at them again and feel them again it's a moment of deep heartbreak And it's a moment of nostalgia for a lost time. When he remembers his love affair with Ilsa, he's also remembering a world that's been wiped out by war. When Sam plays that song, he starts to remember Paris. And that's when we get the flashback. That's when we get to see their love affair unfold a little bit. We don't see how they met. We just see them together. 
we see some of the stuff they did, like driving in a car, then later in their in a hotel room drinking champagne. I love this scene where um, they're drinking the champagne and Rick says, who are you really? And what were you before? What did you do? And what did you think? He asks her all this and she says, we said no questions. And he replies, here's looking at you, kid. But I love that. Who are you really? And what were you before? What were you before? What were you before you met me? That's always a fascinating thing about the people in our lives. Is like, or when in a love relationship, or even sometimes I think about it with my parents. Like, what were they like before I was born? It's always a question that's fascinated me. He wants to know her, and that's very intoxicating. When somebody wants to know you, asks all kinds of questions about you, and is interested in you, there's something intoxicating about that. It's not something that I come across very often in my own life, but I would imagine imagine that it's something that feels very good when somebody wants to know you in that way. What did you do and what did you think? He wants to unpeel her. He wants to excavate everything about her and know her inside and out. But she answers, we said no questions. She's still keeping him at a remove, at a little bit of a distance there. But you see the love. It was a time of pure happiness, of blossoming love. And you see that in the splendor of Ingrid Bergman's smile. How can you not fall in love with Ingrid Bergman? I am a huge, huge Ingrid Bergman fan and always will be. I think her career is fascinating where she did classic Hollywood films like Casablanca and Notorious with Alfred Hitchcock. And then she went to Italy for several years and made these fantastic films with Roberto Rossellini. She went through a lot of flack for that and was attacked for being with Rosalini. So she's a complicated woman. There's a really good documentary about her called Ingrid Bergman in her own words. It uses home movies that she made and excerpts from her diaries and also talks to her children and people who knew her. She was a complex woman as every woman is. And I really enjoyed it. She's a luminous being. She is a luminous woman who was incredibly talented as an actress and very gifted, I think. And when she's on screen, she there's... I can't even put it into words. I absolutely adore Ingrid Bergman. And the way she looks in this film, she's one of those actresses. I think she was more beautiful in black and white. I mean, she's beautiful in Autumn Sonata and the different color films that she did. But there is something about her in the black and white films that I cannot get out of my system. I will just never forget being in that theater as a teenager and seeing her face and her skin and the luminosity and the radiance of this woman. I just, I still can't get over it. I still can't get over her face in this film. That that was everything. I think she knew how to do a lot with her face and her eyes. She almost didn't have to talk. She was that kind of actress, which is, I think, very gifted. Said it through facial expressions and communicated a lot. And just to go on a tangent, what is it about black and white movies that I find so comforting? I really do. I put them on at night, as I said earlier, always at night never in the day, though I'm like that with most movies, but the old black and white ones fit best at night, I think. The world of slumber and dreams. I remember years ago watching the Philadelphia story at night, and I fell asleep halfway through it, and I woke up at different times throughout the film, and I would wake up to see Katherine Hepburn in some shimmering dress. I just remember the shimmer of it all, and how the film felt more like dream than anything else. And maybe that's all films are in the end. 
the stuff of dreams and stars, the stuff floating out in the firmament. That's what those old black and white movies give me, especially when they're playing in the darkness and when I'm watching them in the middle of the night. And they give me that nostalgia. They give me nostalgia for a time I've never known. The world that is in some of these films, obviously not Casablanca. I don't want to be in Casablanca during the Second World War. But when I watch some of the musicals, I would love to be in 1930s (laughs) with a beautiful gown and shipping, um, sipping champagne and dancing and singing the night away. So it's like nostalgia for a place and a time that you've never known. And then just nostalgia for when I was a kid watching films. And I think in Casablanca, there's such a longing. Rick and Ilsa can't be together. So going forward, all they're ever going to have are their memories. That is the only thing they're ever going to carry with them. Their love story does not continue There is no future. It's not viable. It's gone. And the only place where it exists is in the past. And that is all they will ever have of it. So in a way, this film, it has to be nostalgic. It has to be only in the past because that is the only time when Rick and Ilsa will ever be together. You can feel, especially I think in Rick, that longing for how things once were and for the world before the war. Watching it during this COVID-19, coronavirus pandemic was very powerful for me in this way. I find myself thinking about this a lot and becoming very nostalgic, thinking about how the things we used to do, we won't be able to do for a long time, or we'll have to do them in a different way. I don't know what's going to happen going forward. People are staying at home and social distancing as a way to not overcrowd hospitals, but the virus is still going to spread and it's still going to harm people. A viable vaccine won't be available until well into 2021, if that even happens. People are mainly looking right now for treatments. What are ways to make it not so devastating to people's bodies? So for now, for the foreseeable future, for the next year or more, this thing is here. The virus is here. Our lives have been changed. Even when things reopen, even when, you know, I know we can't stay in our houses 24-7 for a year and a half or two years, but we still have to change our behavior and we still have to change the way we live in order to minimize the spread, minimize our contact. We're not going to be able to do a lot of the stuff that we want to do or we'll have to do them in a different way. Life has changed, folks. I mean, it has changed. It's not going back to the way it was for a very long time. And there's a toll that that takes, that radical change, that shocking upending of the world in your life. There's a toll to being afraid to go out, to worrying about what you touch and the air you're breathing and how close you are to someone, worrying that you might hurt someone you love by getting too close to them and spreading something that you don't even know that you have. This is a nightmare. That intimacy is what we've lost for right now, for the foreseeable future, however long this lasts. Certain level of intimacy is gone. So nostalgia is a powerful strain in my life. It's always there. I have trouble living in the present. Maybe I wasn't made for the present, but for the past. Maybe the past is always a home that we return to, that we can't completely leave. I know that I can't. I can't leave it. So the the theme 
of nostalgia in this film really resonates with me in a deep way. I have a lot of nostalgia for my childhood when my father was alive, when I had both my parents, when I had a normal, for the most part, life before I lost so much and went through so much. It's impossible not to long for it or to ache for it, especially when you compare it to the present and compare it to what we are going through. I'll be honest, my mental health is not good right now. My physical health is not good because all of it's intertwined for me. I struggled with my health before the pandemic. This has added an even larger burden onto me and I have a lot of worries and fears and anxieties and all of that. So I become very nostalgic during times like this. Films make me nostalgic. Just watching Casablanca transports me to that film appreciation class in 2004. Back to that room of dark darkness hundreds of miles away from where I am now. A school I still see in my head, its layout so clear, but that I will never step foot in again. A class of teenagers who are all in their 30s now, getting older, having children, and creating families. I wonder about them at times. I really do. I wonder if they still watch these films, if they remember the class and the things we laughed at and what Mrs. Ray taught us. I wonder if the class means as much to them as it does to me. Or maybe I'm the only one who carries all these memories of that class. I hope they remember. I hope they still watch Casablanca and Singing in the Rain and Some Like It Hot and The Wizard of Oz, maybe with their own children or their loved ones. I hope the magic of movies is alive in them the way it's alive in me. It's the thing that connects us. So that is my discussion of Casablanca. I hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate so much that you listened. I now want to give a shout out to my awesome patrons, Christine. David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Till, JD, Vanessa, Polina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons and for supporting the work that I am doing. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.